Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Welcome to the Daily Jungle and welcome to Rome in Space. Huge show today with the Jungle on satellite radio for the first time ever and we covered a ton of ground. Louisville is no longer the 2013 national champions. Kirstie Alley is no longer alive, at least not online, after getting murdered by the U.S. curling team. And Patasar from Bugahaw, still not on the podcast. Jeff Passan brought it the way he always does, but this time from South Korea. Middle Tennessee basketball coach Kermit Davis was tremendous, and Florida State forward Phil Kofer made his jungle debut a very good one. Alvi, lots to get done today, so go ahead and roll it. No, no, we set that right now. Louisville basketball. The Louisville basketball program made history yesterday. They are now officially the first modern Division I men's basketball team to be stripped of a national title. The NCAA's Infractions Appeals Committee announced that it was upholding the original ruling that the school must vacate records from 2011 through 2012 through 2014 and 2015. Through those seasons, that includes the 2012 Final Four run and the 2013 National Championship. So let's be clear about this first. And I can't believe I'm about to say it, but this is the punishment for the earlier scandal. The one with the strippers, not the latest scandal, the first scandal, the one where the NCAA found that Andre McGee, their former director of basketball operations, paid Katina Powell and other women thousands of dollars and other gifts in exchange for stripper parties and sex acts involving players and recruits. They're getting hammered for that. They're having a banner ripped down and wins vacated for that. You know, in terms of the punishment and whether or not it fits the crime, you know, to me, having a banner ripped down is pretty embarrassing. But it's also one of the lamest punishments ever. Because it's not like the Olympics. Michigan, who lost to Louisville in the championship game, does not get the trophy. That's not how that works. In fact, I'll tell you how it works. According to Andy Katz, the official policy is none of this even happened. It didn't happen, ever. Quote, to record vacancies for NCAA tournament games, the wins and losses of the penalized team are dropped from its overall record and treated as if no games had ever been played. End quote. So as an example, everybody remembers exactly where they were when Kevin Ware snapped his leg in the most gruesome way possible, right? We all remember that moment, right? We know exactly where we were when that happened, right? Wrong. Because apparently it didn't happen. Not according to the NCAA, it didn't. Never mind where. Never mind where. Me, personally, I'm still not right to this day because of having seen that. And all I did was watch it from a couple of thousand miles away, and I'm not right. So I'm pretty sure if you ask where, if his stick snapped in two, he would say, yes, it happened. But the NCAA would call him a liar and say, nope, nope, never happened. That game was never played. Speaking of which, Louisville never played Duke in the Elite Eight that year, thanks to a new Total Recall memory wipe. You know, you've got no idea that Louisville beat Duke by 22 that day and that Ware's shin bone never came out of his right leg. It never happened. Hey, hey, speaking of which, do you remember that great Texas-USC Rose Bowl? One of the all-time great games in college football history. You remember that? Well, you shouldn't because that didn't happen either. The NCAA says they never played each other in that Rose Bowl. And that Vince Young never scored on that fourth and five to win a national championship. So you, UT fan, need to stop running your mouth about something that never, ever happened. So, those games never happened, and now Louisville won't have a banner in the rafters. That's embarrassing. That's awkward. Awkward. But really, how bad of a punishment is that? How bad of a punishment is that really? I mean, I know Louisville fans would much rather have that banner than not have that banner. But as Ware himself tweeted, and I quote, still got this fat-ass ring, which means my guys definitely want a chip. And if I'm not mistaken, of course. And isn't that the whole point? 
you know, barring some eternal sunshine of the spotless mind move, all you've really done is rip a piece of fabric from the ceiling, a trophy from the trophy case, and some numbers from a book. Everything else still happened. Those games still happened. Louisville still beat Michigan for a national championship. They still got to hold the trophy. They still got their rings. Rick Patino still got his championship ink. In other words, they still won the national championship that you're saying that they didn't win and that you're saying never happened. Listen, don't get it twisted. I'm not condoning what Louisville did. I'm not saying that they shouldn't be punished. What they did was stupid. They should be punished. But the point is, if you're going to punish them, then punish them. Ordering a slight redecoration of their arena is not the worst punishment ever. In fact, it's not punishment at all. But you see, that's where you bump into the NCAA's other problem. What are the punishments that fit that crime? The NCAA has always struggled with that and has always frequently just resorted to ripping wins. But since you can't erase the past, you better come up with a better punishment in the future because that's a bad look for Louisville and it's just a weird look for the NCAA because in taking their national title from them, you really haven't taken anything at all from them. From South Korea, Jeff Passan is my guest. Jeff, good morning or good night or whatever time it is. What's up, Jeff? How are you? Uh, it is 2.20 in the morning here, Van Snack. But, Savage! Uh, I, I, will, I will do anything for you, my friend. So if that means waking up in the middle of the night, then... Uh, let's make this happen. My man, I appreciate you, Jeff. That is a savage move. 2.20 in the middle of the night. All right, lots of topics that I could hit you with, but overall, what are your impressions of the 2018 Winter Olympics so far, Jeff? Um, America's mediocre. Uh, we we all should aspire to be like Norway uh, when it comes to things uh, done on snow. Um and and if it were not for snowboards and and freestyle skis, uh, I'm I'm not sure where the Americans would be right now in terms of the medal count, but it would be pretty embarrassing. I mean, for a while there, I think we went like more than a week without the United States winning a gold medal after Sean White, and and they finally got one today in cross country because we know America is a big cross country country. <laughs> If there's anything we know about this country, it's that. Jeff Passon joining us. Now, Jeff, you had a piece yesterday on Elizabeth Sweeney. It's something I wanted to get to yesterday. I did not. I've got my own opinion. But the half-pipe skier went viral after a simple run in the half-pipe. Some of the attention that she received was positive. For example, I love the fact that she found a way to get there, but a good chunk of it, Jeff, was negative. Winter Olympics, I mean, Winter Olympian is just a list line of her resume, which also includes candidate for governor. So for those who don't know her or her background, exactly who is Elizabeth Sweeney? Uh, one of the, the more interesting people I've ever met, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and I'm not exaggerating here because it's, it's not just running for governor. This is, this is the person, I think every one of us has a person like this in our lives uh, who, who really just doesn't care what people think about him or her. Um, she doesn't really know how to dance, but she tried out for the Clippers girls and, and the jazz dance team. And uh, she, you know, she ran for governor, like you said, of California at 19 against Arnold Schwarzenegger. And she's had this dream since she was seven years old to be an Olympian. The problem was she's kind of a mediocre athlete. And so she started off trying to uh, be a skeleton racer. Wasn't good enough there to make the U.S. team. So she learned how to ski and started skiing for the Venezuelan national team because we know that Venezuela is famous for its skiing Uh, and uh, did not make the, the Olympics through there. Then her grandparents were from Hungary. So... Uh, she ended up being on the Hungarian national ski team and over the last few years has gone all the way around the world to different World Cup events enough to qualify. Now, 
the problem is she's not a very good skier. So she just goes up the side of the wall and comes back down. And I think my favorite moment of the Olympics so far was watching the replay on NBC. Like they gave her the full-on super slow-mo replay as she's getting three inches out of the half pipe. And the commentators are sitting there. just They they don't exactly know what to say because what do you say to that? What I personally say to that is not just good for her for – for gaming the system the way that she did, knowing that you can reach this dream by entering a sport that really nobody around the world participates in. But good for her for just having the uh, unashamed look of going out there and saying, I'm going to do what I can do to the best of my abilities. And even if there are other world-class athletes around me, it doesn't matter. The Olympics aren't necessarily for world-class athleticism. They're for the world to compete together. And I applaud her for doing Clones, that. I need one moment so I can talk to you about stamps.com. It goes without saying that the U.S. Postal Service is an important tool for any business reaching every household every single day. Now, Stamps.com is the easiest way to access all the amazing services of the post office. Stamps.com never closes. You can print postage for letters or packages at your convenience 24-7. You can print postage for any mail class right from your own computer. With the exact amount of postage every single time, so you never underpay or overpay. And Stamps.com saves you time and money, which you can use to grow your business. I love Stamps.com, and the reason I use Stamps.com is because it is convenient, it is easy, it is reliable, it is so efficient, it saves me so much time. I love this product. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale. So go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Jungle. To get this deal, go to Stamps.com and enter the code name Jungle. I love this product. I know you will, too. That's Stamps.com. And now it's back to our daily jungle. Jeff Passan, my guest, I agree with you. I really do. And even though you just answered that, let me just ask you directly and specifically. I think it's great. I loved it personally. But what is your response to somebody who would say, look, she's not an Olympic skier. She gamed the system, and that is not keeping with the Olympic spirit. You know, I asked her that same question, actually. I said, you did this, obviously, by, by the letter of the law, but what about the spirit of the law? And, and she was confused by that question. So that just goes to show you right. she is, like, there, there, there is a single-mindedness there with, with Elizabeth uh, that's very interesting. And, you know, she, when she was in the, the mix zone is where we talk with the athletes. And when she was in the mix zone and, and she said, you know, I'm just happy that I put down two runs, it was like people were looking at her like, what are, what are you talking about? Like, how can you say this? You know, honestly, the first time I talked with her, I got off the phone afterward because I was not at her event that morning. And and I I swear to God, for five minutes, I just sat there and said, that is one of the weirdest conversations I've ever had. Because, you know, it felt like there was almost this obliviousness to reality there. But, you know, the more I spoke with her and the more I talked with people who know her, I think she just thinks differently than almost everybody out there. She is free of concern from outside thoughts. And while others will sit there and say, yeah, that's that's blissful ignorance, to me, that is like the peak of humanity right there. If you can guide your life based on what you want to do and not be concerned with what others think of you or how others see you. Imagine the liberty that comes with that and how freeing it is to her. And what she's done with it is take that and parlay into being an Olympian. Jeff Passon, my guest, I agree with you. I mean, not only is she living her best life, I got bad news for people killing her. She's living everybody's best life because she just doesn't give a damn, which I respect. Let me ask you, Jeff, about Lindsey Vaughn. She wins a bronze medal in the downhill. It might be her final Olympic downhill. If this is the end of her Olympic career, how should it be remembered? You know, she she became the third American to win three downhill medals today. And 
it was obvious she wanted a gold medal. Uh, she's the best downhill racer in the world. She's been the best downhill racer in the world for a decade right now. She's she's arguably uh, the best downhill, uh, not best downhill, but best alpine skier in history, male or female. She's only five World Cup wins short of that. So uh, her career has been pretty incredible. And what, what's most incredible to me is that she shredded, and I mean full-on shredded her knee twice. And here she is at 33 years old, well past what her prime was after all of these injuries, still going out there and carving down a hill at 75 miles an hour. Um, and one of the, you know, I'd never covered alpine skiing before this Winter Olympics. One of the most interesting things to me is the way that alpine skiers carry themselves. They might be the most arrogant people on the planet. They, they walk with their chests out. They're like, yeah, I just, I just went down a, a giant hill 75 miles per hour on skis. Can you do that? And, of course, the answer is no. I, I cannot do that, and neither can any of the people sitting next to me and anybody but you you insane people. And, uh, the, the you know, the athletes at the, the Winter Olympics, I think, probably don't get enough credit because it, it's different athleticism than we're used to. It, there, there is an enormous amount of mental athleticism in in winter olympic sports whether it's it's flying 18 feet out of a half pipe and coming down knowing that you're going into uh potentially you know slamming your head on a sheet of ice and it's cruising down a mountain and uh it's snowboard cross where these guys are, are flying you know 50 feet over jumps and trying to bump each other off and trying to knock someone out of it. I mean, the, the capacity for injury in these sports is, is spectacular. And I give all the credit into the world them for credit in the world to them for doing what they do. Jeff passing my guest. Listen, one more thought. I'm going to run a little bit long, but I want to get your thoughts on this. I mean, she's been near or at the top of her sport for a long, long time. She generates a ton of media attention. She's very comfortable with it. Let me ask you this. What's it like to cover the Winter Olympics, and to cover athletes, many of whom who really do not get many or much media attention at all until this moment. It's great because for the first time in four years, people actually want to talk to them. Uh, right. <laughs> I'm a, right. I go to baseball clubhouse every right. day normally, and, and players are going in and hiding in the break room and just trying to stay away from us because, yeah, of course, why wouldn't they? Uh, but w- Winter Olympians... You know, the, the Winter Olympics to me, and really the Olympics in general, uh, they're a TV event at this point because we, we don't pay attention to this stuff every four years, you know. It, it's like a year before every Olympic cycle, we remember who the stars are and start thinking about them. And then six months before every Olympic cycle, uh, you know, it starts kicking into gear and we look at the, the secondary sports. And and then the, just the fringiest sports. I mean, curling? Like, who watches curling when it's not an Olympic year? But it, it's almost, to me, got like a World Cup in America feel to it. Like, I, I am not a soccer guy, but I love watching the World Cup, and I love watching the Euro when it's on. Curling enthralls people, and, and I I don't get it, but... God bless it. I mean, the, the Winter Olympics bring us to this place where uh, we appreciate sports that we wouldn't otherwise. Then we brainwash ourselves and forget about them for four years. And then, oh, the Winter Olympics are back, and we go and see them again. And, and it reminds us why we enjoyed it in the first place. On this topic of Kirstie Alley, now, if you think me taking a call from Parody Larry was questionable, this take certainly will be, because I know what you clones will do with it. I know you better than you know you. I know what you think before you think, and I know what's going to happen if I do this. I just do. But then again, how bad can it really be? I just took a phone call from Parody Larry, and he did what he did. Listen, Kirstie Alley has had better days. She has had better days because she learned a very, very important lesson. Lesson being, you do not throw rocks at a sport that throws boulders for a living because Kirsty picked a fight with the wrong crew when she thumbed out the following 10 words on Twitter yesterday. Quote, I'm not trying to be mean, but 
Curling is boring. Wrong tweet, Kirsty. Because Curling Nation didn't just come at her. The nation's curling team did. And I'm saying not like a bunch of Twitter eggs, but like Team USA. Not eggs, Team USA. Literally. They got word of her tweet and they jumped on the little blue bird and came out firing. First, Skip John Schuster threw the first stone. He tweeted, we're not trying to be mean either, but your movies weren't exactly riveting theater, Kirsty. Hashtag, just saying. Hashtag, curling. Hashtag, rocket. Hashtag, Team USA. I believe that's an example of Look who's talking smack. Look who's talking smack. You're saying we're boring. Meanwhile, that was just the start of things. Mustached curling god, Matt Hamilton, dropped into her mentions, and he kept it short and sweet. Quote, You're entitled to your wrong opinion. Fire. And it only got worse from there. Then teammate Tyler George ended the fight when he went next level with some absolute savagery. Tweeting, Diane, greater than Rebecca. Fight over. Tyler George just murdered Kirstie Alley on Twitter. Kirstie Alley. The ref did not even bother counting and instead went right to ripping her mouthpiece and hitting her with the paddles as she lay lifeless on the canvas. You want to talk about a haymaker. And our dude George did it with two symbols, a greater than or two words, a greater-than symbol, and a photo of Diane Chambers, who, by the way, was way better than Rebecca Howe. Leaving that show may have been the dumbest thing that any sitcom actress has ever done, but Rebecca was a straight hack compared to Diane. I'm pretty sure when Kirsty hopped on social for a little bit of interaction, I doubt that she thought she'd be buried under a six-foot slab of ice and then zambonied over by a 35-year-old vice skip on the U.S. curling team from Duluth, Minnesota. I mean, things got so crazy that another iconic star of yesteryear, Christy Swanson, Buffy the Vampire Slayer herself came off the bench as the third person in to stick up for Team Curling. Though it's not like those dudes needed any help or were asking for any help themselves. And then knowing that she was fighting a fight that she could not win and should have never ever started, Kirsty backpedaled faster than those dudes working the brooms and woke up this morning and tweeted, quote, Hi. And then a coffee cup emoji. And then she chased that with, quote, I deleted any of my tweets that I decided were unnecessary. True, I could have deleted all my tweets with that criteria, but I'm lazy. End quote. Right, Becca. Which is what got you into into this mess in the first place. Another lazy tweeter with a blue check trying to feed the beast that is social. Didn't your parents ever teach you if you don't have anything smart to say, say nothing at all? Oh, and to keep the U.S. curling team out your mouth. Either way, all's well that ends well. With the U.S. curling team exhuming her body from that slab of ice that they put it into. And Kirsty landing an invite to the local curling club. And more importantly, the U.S. team fighting back from that terrible start to the Olympics to upsetting the Canadians and then ripping off three wins to stay alive in the medal rounds. So, instead of killing her, they should be thanking her for pumping a few gallons of premium fuel into them. Beside, 
There's no sport in ruining somebody who's got no skills or an ability to defend themselves. Hey, Rebecca, next time, don't bring a rock to a boulder fight. And stop acting like Sam Malone wanted you. He never did. Uh, Christy Alley. That's one way to stay relevant. Never, ever bring a rock to a boulder fight. Dear James, and again, I knew what I signed up for, and I knew what I was getting into when I approached that topic. Dear James, my autocorrect really goofed up last night. I didn't mean curling was boring. I meant my curly fries were boring. So I added bacon and cheese. Sorry for the mix-up. Thanks, Kirsty. All right, this, this, again, is not about what she eats. This is not again about how much she eats. This is not about how she likes her curly fries. This is about curling. Curling. The Olympics. An Olympic sport. Her taking a run at that team and that team responding and burying her. This is not about curly fries. Dear Rome, Kirstie Alley needs to lay off curling and pick on somebody her own size. Like Dane Cook, Phil in Missouri. Great, Phil. So you think Dane Cook is fat? Why, why is that a topic? I don't know if he is. I don't know if he isn't. I know this. I don't care. I, I love prototypical clone. 4% body weight in the gym every single day and just lying in wait, waiting for a celebrity to gain one or 70 pounds so they can pounce. Rome, I'm not trying to be mean, but Kirsty Alley is fat. fat. Signed Jimmy and Fat Antonio. War, if he can be Poncho, why can't I be Tyrone? Absolutely incredible. I, honestly, I don't even remember what that means anymore. Kermit Davis is my guest. Kermit, nice to have you on the show. How are you? Great to be with you, Jim. Kermit, great to have you on. So let me ask you about last Saturday's game against Louisiana Tech. Before that game, you told your team that if they won, they would have the most true road wins of any team in the country, and then they did just that. They beat Tech in their place for the first time. It's a game where you dominated on the boards. You were nearly perfect from the foul line. So how pleased were you with the way your guys showed up and played that game? Well, you know, Jim, I think this time of the year, as we all see in different conferences, where these games get get the margin of of winning just shrinks and we haven't had a lot of luck at Louisiana Tech and they've got a good team and I was proud of our guys you know Jim we're, we're at a school where we don't buy games we don't get bought so we're going for us to be good we got to go win on the road and uh so to win 12 true road games and be 12 and one on the road and, and it gave them kind of a nugget at the end of that trip it was our last road trip of the year and uh, so we all felt really good and I really did get a feeling that if we could win that game then maybe we'd have a chance to to get ranked, which is a, you know, it's a good feat at Middle Tennessee. Kermit Davis, my guest. In fact, Kermit, I was going to ask you about that because Saturday you'll be playing at home as a ranked team for the first time in school history. Now, given the success that you've had the last few seasons, there was a good chance that this moment was going to come. But how significant is it now that it's here? You know, Jim, if you're the Blue Bloods at Kentucky and Duke and you can give the coach speak, you know, it's the next game and the whole thing. But for a school like Middle Tennessee, which we, we fight every day for a national brand, and then we got a lot of work ahead of us. It has increased, and that's a great thing for our city and, and our fan base and our players. But it was amazing. You know, you get a lot of Texas after you win a big game, but it's amazing the number of Texas that we all got just for getting ranked and, and the national things that, that kind of happened for our players. So it will be. It'll be a really good feeling to run out there in Murphy Center in front of a huge crowd against UAB and and being nationally ranked. So it's a big deal in Murfreesboro. Kermit, I get it. I really do. I went to UC Santa Barbara, and back in the day, we were never ranked. And I remember the first time we got the top 25, it was the most amazing thing because you're right. If you're not a blue blood and you don't go to the tournament, much less win in the tournament, it's such a significant thing. So I totally understand what you're saying. The thing is, though, you do go to the tournament. You beat the two-seed Michigan State back in 2016, and then you chase that by beating the five-seed Minnesota in the tournament last year. So doing it one year is amazing, but how important was it to be able to do it again last year? And what's that say about the program? and the sustainability that you're building? 
the word you just used, Jim, is what is kind of our battle cry, sustainability. And I've used it for now two years, and it was just exactly what we told our players uh, the year after we beat Michigan State, is that, you know, we, we did we did some great things, but can we back it up? And can we lose three or four good players and keep going like the Gonzagas of the world and the Butlers of the world and Xavier's? And those are the kind of programs that we're trying to emulate. And so we did it, and we win 31 games, and we lose our two best players, two great players, and uh, and then to be able to come back again. And so the sustainability part, Jim, is is getting there. We're not there yet, but but that is the hard part, and that's probably the, the thing that I'm most proud of with our with our program right now. Kermit Davis joining us. You know, I can see where you might look at Gonzaga and Butler and try and model your program after schools like that, but you're going to do it your own way. So how would you describe the Middle Tennessee way of doing things? You know, I think this is that you got to find your niche in recruiting, and so we just have a blend. I mean, we're, we've are we gotten really good high school players, a Reggie Upshaw, Giddy Potts, who's done so many great things for us in national games. Uh, then we've been very good at one-year transfers where Kentucky and Duke will get uh, the high school guys for a year. We sit a guy a year, and he'll play a year. We've had two MVPs. Uh, this year, Nick King is a, a grad transfer from Alabama, have a chance to probably be MVP of, of our league, about 6'7", timely junior college players. So it's just a uh, – we, we haven't complicated things. we got a lot of good players within four or 500 miles of this Murfreesboro national area, you know, Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, Kentucky. So we kind of stay in our area to recruit. And uh, if you look at our team play, I think you'll see athleticism. I think when we go out right now, Jim, everybody says, well, how'd you beat? And I guess we're 10 and six against the SEC the last 16 games. I said, you know what? When we go, we tip it up. Our guys look just like their guys. And we're physical, we're athletic, we're tough. And we've had really good players. And so uh, I think that's why it's allowed us to play in these national games. We're talking Middle Tennessee basketball. Kermit, go back to Nick King. I love that story because he had 25-10 and 10 in the win at Louisiana Tech. Now, this is somebody you recruited for a very long time, going back to his days at East High School, but he did not pick you the first time around. He did not pick you the second time around. So what was it like to finally get him as a graduate transfer? Probably like when I was in college, about the third time, about the time I could get a date, Jim. So <laughs> right. I, guess, I guess perseverance, you know. But, you know, Nick was like a top 30 high school player, we just fired a shot early, then obviously got too big. And, and he, 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 like a lot of these Memphis kids, he grew up wanting to go play for the Tigers, and he did. He played there two years. And then the second time, I really thought we'd get him the second time. His dad, Greg, I think really wanted him to come, but Nick still had the power five stars in his eyes. And he went to Alabama, and he kind of got a lung infection and got sick, and, and he just thought, you know, he had a great influx of young players at Alabama, which we've all seen. And he just knew kind of his position, that hybrid four-man has been the wheelhouse of our program for the last eight or ten years. I mean, he saw those two guys leave right at his position, and he's come in and, like I said, third time of charms for Nick King at Middle Tennessee. That's what I said. I love that story. Kermit Davis joining us. You know, he's having a huge year for you, but I want to ask you about Chase Miller. Now, Chase Miller is a walk-on who got a few minutes against Rice earlier this month, and he drained a three for the first points of his career based on the reaction from the rest of the team. It's clear how much he's loved in that locker room. What makes him so special, and then what was that moment like for the entire team? You know, I think, number one, Jim, you saw it, and I appreciate you mentioning Chase. I think it kind of typifies our program and why we win. Uh, And it's not because it was a laughable deal. They have so much respect for Chase. He's been a walk-on for our team for three years. First guy in the gym, the most lending teammate, whatever he can do, where he's going to rebound balls for different guys and not shoot and warm. I mean, just all the different things. And he's been going for two years trying to make a bucket. And we called a play for him. And he hit one right in front of our bench. And I'm telling you, it was so, it was so funny. So the story, the next day, you know, and our, our place went crazy. And our bench did, did. I mean, I almost got technical foul for getting on the floor. And so the next day, we watched, like, the game up until, like, five minutes before Chase got in. And I just cut it off, went practice. So I think Chase just thought we weren't going to show it. So we came back in the locker room. And I said, I said, guys, I said, Chase Miller has sat here and watched you guys make thousands of shots for three years now. And I said, bye, guys, we're fixing to watch him make this thing about ten times. So we kept showing it over and over and over in <laughs> the bench reaction. And we great. got about the same response in the locker room the next day. That is great. What a great story. Kermit Davis joining us. You know, you look at it. You're in your 16th season in Middle Tennessee. You're having an amazing run. But it's a run, arguably, that almost never started. Because you were an assistant at LSU when that job opened up. You were interested in Middle Tennessee but realistically, how interested at that time was Middle Tennessee in you? 
I couldn't get anywhere, uh, Jim. You know, what it happens is uh, Boots Donnelly was old football coach, was the AD, and I tried to call coach, and, and he would never call me back. So all of a sudden, John L. Smith, you know, used to be the coach at Louisville. He and I worked together at Idaho and Utah State. John L. was a coach at Louisville, and then he went to Michigan State. And uh, John L. said, Kermit, he just called me out of the blue one day. He said, you interested in that Middle Tennessee job? I said, yeah, John, but I got no chance. I said, that guy won't call me back. He said, hold on for about five minutes. So that's one of his best friends. You know, he's not football coaches stick together. So all of a sudden, ten minutes later, uh, Kermit, Boots Donnelly. I said, hey, coach, how you doing? And we met in Atlanta. And uh, my dad's an old coach, Jim, basketball coach at Mississippi State. He reminded a lot of my dad. And I knew in about 30 minutes that Coach Donnelly was going to hire me. And uh, so it was – it's amazing how you do get opportunities, and it was for John L. Smith and his relationship with a former football coach. That, that is amazing that John L. Smith got you that opportunity, but how did you know within 30 minutes? What did you discuss with him within 30 minutes that you knew that was going to be your job? You know, you can just talk to a guy, and you know when the guy feels comfortable with you, and I know when I felt comfortable with Coach Donnelly. Uh, he, he wanted discipline and structure in his program, and, and he was a great hall. He's in the College Football Hall of Fame, and and uh, he, I just could tell that we connected. And then he knew that my priorities is what they needed in their program. And uh, so you just kind of have a, a gut feeling. And then I came on the interview. And, and what's an amazing thing, too, Jim, is how many guys can say this. Dr. McPhee, my president, who hired me 16 years ago, is still my president. Mm. So not many times you can ever do that. And so my support from administration has been terrific. Sports Illustrated dropped a report last night into the conduct of the Dallas Mavericks organization. And it paints a picture of, quote, a corporate culture rife with misogyny, predatory sexual behavior, alleged public fondling by the team president, outright domestic assault by a a high-profile member of the Mavs.com staff, unsupportive or even intimidating responses from superiors who heard complaints of inappropriate behavior from their employees— even an employee who openly watched pornography at his desk. End quote. That's damning. If true, that's damning. Watching porn at work right there at your desk. I mean, if that's true, either that dude has a serious addiction, if he can't get through his entire workday without feeding it, or that's an incredibly loose culture where it's okay to just fire up Pornhub before heading into the weekly sales meeting. Probably both in that guy's case, if that's true. Watching porn at your desk at work? And that's not even nearly as bad as some of the other things that were alleged. One former employee told SI, quote, it was a real-life animal house. And I only say was because I'm not there anymore. I'm sure it's still going on, end quote. Hopefully it's not. Especially that part about that dude peeping porn in broad daylight desk. I mean, that report is damning. Detailing one incident after another involving one individual who was allegedly harassing multiple women over the years in incidents that range, quote, from inappropriate remarks to requests for sex to touching women's calves and thighs during meetings, end quote. And can I tell you, that was not some random employee either. It was allegedly the former team president and CEO, Tadima Ussery. The president and CEO. Meantime, the report also describes a couple of domestic violence incidents involving former Mavs.com writer Earl K. Sneed. One in which he pled guilty to misdemeanor family violence and another where he was dating a fellow team employee and reportedly hit her, but continued working around the team and told the Dallas Morning News, quote, I also signed a contract stating that I would not have one-on-one contact or fraternize with female employees after the inaccurately described incident with my female co-worker who was a live-in girlfriend. I abided by the details of that contract for four years and received counseling during that period to avoid future instances, end quote. I mean, what the hell? You have an employee who pleads guilty to a domestic violence charge and then allegedly hits a fellow employee who is his girlfriend 
but it's cool to keep this guy working with the team because he signed something stating that he would not have one-on-one contact with female employees. That's how that works? How can anybody justify that? I mean, that doesn't just seem like a really bad guy. That seems like a really bad culture also. So the obvious question, exactly where's Mark Cuban in all of this? SI makes it clear Cuban was not a perpetrator. Cuban was not involved in harassment. But according to one former employee, quote, trust me, Mark knows everything that goes on. Of course, Mark knew about the instances of harassment and assault. Everyone knew. End quote. Cuban responds to SI by saying that's not true. That's not the case. Cuban said, quote, this is all new to me. The only awareness I have is because I heard you guys were looking into some things. Based on what I've read here, we just fired our HR person. I don't have any tolerance for what I've read. End quote. And then when asked how one of the most hands-on owners in all of professional sports didn't know what was going on in his organization, he said, quote, I deferred to the CEO, who at the time was Terdima and HR. I was involved in basketball operations, but other than getting the financials and reports, I was not involved in the day-to-day of the business side at all. That's why I just deferred. I let people do their jobs. And if there were anything like this at all, that I was supposed to be made aware of, obviously I was not, end quote. And then finally he went on to say, quote, it's wrong, it's abhorrent, it's not a situation we condone. I can't tell you how many times, particularly since all this hashtag me too stuff has been coming out recently, I asked our HR director, do we have a problem? Do we have any issues I have to be aware of? And the answer was no, end quote. All right, so what do you think? Where do you come out? I mean, like, if you want to give Cuban the benefit of the doubt, his comments do seem to be heartfelt. He sounds sincere. They were well said. He talked about how there's a problem in the organization. He will fix it. He's embarrassed that it happened under his ownership. But consider this. I mean, the days of not knowing are over. It's not good enough to say that you didn't know what was going on in your company When this is going on in your company, that doesn't just go for the Mavericks. It goes for everybody, every other franchise in professional sports. Hell, every other business better be doing an internal investigation right now. Because while this report focuses on the Mavericks, this is not a problem that is exclusive to the Mavericks. And nobody else can say, I didn't know. I didn't know. That excuse has been used up. Let me say this one more time. The days of not knowing are over. It's your company. Not knowing is not an excuse. It's your business to know because it's your business. It's your company. And clearly, this is not the last story of its kind that we're going to hear. It's not a question of if. It's a matter of when. I'd give it, I don't know, maybe another week or two. It's going to happen again. But not knowing is not an excuse. It's your business to know your business. Phil Kofer is my guest. Phil, it's great to have you on. What's up? How are you? Uh, pretty good. What's up? I'm doing great, Phil. Everything's good here. Let me ask you. You're coming off the win over Pittsburgh, and you've won two straight. Now you've got a little bit of time off to rest up before NC State Sunday. You know March is right around the corner. So what's the mood and the vibe like among your players right now? Uh, definitely, definitely a good vibe. I think uh, everybody knows what we're going to have to accomplish. You know, uh, just to get these next, you know, next few wins uh, on the road and stuff. So I think everybody's locked in this week. You know, getting in, getting treatment because it's definitely going to be a, a long road ahead of us. So. You know, Phil, I mentioned the, your stats at the start of the conversation, and they're great. They're strong. But you bring a lot more to it than just numbers and stats. As an example, one of your teammates, C.J. Walker, said, quote, Phil brings laughter and positivity to the team. He brings everybody together. He is a great teammate, end quote. So let me ask you this. How you go about creating the right atmosphere and mood in the locker room and in the team? What's your approach to that? Uh, really, I really kind of get it from Coach Ham. I think uh, just – Coming in the locker room, sometimes it'll be, you know, first half, it'll be down by, you know, a certain amount sometimes. And I think Coach Ham always comes to the locker, locker room with a positivity, like, uh, you know, go, don't get down on yourself. 
So I try to, you know, uh, teach the younger guys and even the older group of guys, like, we don't need to be negative no matter what. And I think it's actually uh, helping us a lot this year. So Okay, so when you mentioned Coach Ham, you're talking about Leonard Hamilton. Now, he, he's one of my favorite guys in the business, mm-hmm. and not just because I think the guy's a hell of a coach, I think that, but because he shows up to the season-opening event, jam with Ham in unbelievable <laughs> gear, and he makes it work. So what's it like to play for him? Uh, it's, definitely, it's definitely fun, man. He's, a, he's definitely a great coach, and I think uh, everybody, everybody understands. It feels like he's another father figure on the team for us, and I think uh, that outfit he had uh, at Jam with Ham was crazy. He had a few dance moves for us, too, but... Besides that, man, I think he's like I say he's a great coach, and and I most, mo- get most of my positivity from him. So, all right. So now you mentioned dance moves. Uh, to that point, I've got a source on the inside who suggests that you might be the best dancer on the team. Is it accurate? And can anybody give you a run for your money? <laughs> uh, I'll probably all my teammates say I probably am, but I might have a little competition by Terrence, man. But besides that, I think I'm think I'm at the top. <laughs> Good, Phil Cole for joining us. You know so. Obviously, you're a great dude, and guys gravitate to you. They like you. I mean, you're one of the best guys, but at the same time, when you're on the floor, you like to bring what you call a junkyard to the game, and especially to defense. So how do you go from being one of the really good dudes to a guy who's willing to go to battle and grind on the floor, especially on that end of the floor? Do you just flip a switch when it's time to go? Definitely, definitely. And I think I, I get that trait from my my dad and my mom, just how you know competitive, competitive they are, and uh, I think, just for, you know, my dad playing the NFL, he, he did the same thing. He was a cool guy off the court. They always called him plenty, all that type of stuff. But when, you know, game time and stuff comes, the practice stuff comes, he turns it on and just, uh, you know, tries to get everything right and just get that dog mentality every every day. So, I see now your dad, he didn't just play in the NFL. He was a pro bowler for the Detroit Lions. Your mom, Reba, played basketball at Tennessee. So what was it like growing up the son of two great athletes and two people that competitive? It, it was definitely fun, man. We did sometimes in the backyard. Me and my brother, uh, we'll face uh, my mom and my dad, and they they won most of the time. But as soon as we got older, we started to beat them. But besides that, we always had a, a you know competitive spirit in our whole entire family, really. And my dad just basically preached to me that you know keep working hard no matter what, no matter how 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 everything looks and stuff. And so I think I really get it from my whole family. All right. So if your whole family's involved, like when you're when you're coming up and you and your brother would take them on your mom and your dad in two on twos. How did those games go, and how was your mom's jumper? <laughs> my mom definitely my mid range my mom's mid range jumper was crazy, and my dad used to always try and post me up. <laughs> so I mean, he, he was definitely stronger than me. So they they won a few games, but like I said, when we got a little older, yeah, it was over with. <laughs> Phil Cole for joining us. That's great. Now, growing up, you were kind of a Sean Kemp guy, right? What did you like about Sean yeah, Kemp's definitely, game? Definitely. What did you like about his game? Really, just how how aggressive he played in the game and how he approached the game. In high school, I used to always look at dunking videos, and it would usually be of him. So he used to dunk everything, no matter you know how far he was and stuff like that. So I, I kind of modeled my game after him. So, hey, Listen, it all sounds great, but this does not mean that this was not easy or that it was easy and was not without some kind of challenge. For instance, you had a great freshman year, and then your sophomore year was cut short by ankle surgery. When something like that happens, it'd be pretty easy to get down and ask, why me? But instead, you stayed right on it. You sat next to the associate head coach, Stan Jones, during games, and you tried to learn everything you could. What made you do that, and then what was your biggest takeaway from the experience? Uh, Definitely, man. I think I actually learned a lot. And, you know, injuries, you always going to have a little letdown, but I just had so many people in my life that kind of helped me and just said, you know, keep pushing forward no matter what. And, you know, in the end, in the end, you'll get all the blessings you want. But besides that, I think uh, my sophomore year and my uh, my sophomore year was definitely a learning experience. Just sent by Coach Jones. He would just say stuff like, hey, that guy needs to be in that position, that guy needs to be in that position. And I basically just kind of modeled my game after that and just, uh, you know, did the things that uh, we needed to do for, you know, this year. And I think Coach Jones definitely helped me on the bench. You know, another assistant coach, uh, C.Y. Young, said, quote, he's one of the best human beings on planet Earth. He treats everybody he meets like they're the king of the world. He's got a gift where I could see him being the A.D. of a university yeah. 10 or 15 years from now. I mean, that's an amazing thing for a coach to say about a young player mm-hmm. such as yourself. So what's it mean to hear that? And then what's your approach to being a leader on that team? Uh, I think it's definitely good. You know, C.Y. is definitely my guy. And I, I think uh, – he talks to me day in and day out, and not even just about basketball. Just you know how, how life, you know how life is and stuff. And I think most I get you know that niceness and stuff from my mom, just because my mom, you know, my mom, she's always a giving person, no matter what. So and you, it's my mom always says, you know, treat how you want to be treated, and I just take that initiative on and off the court. So. 
Let's go to Connecticut quickly. Sam in Connecticut. Good to have you, Sam. What's up? How are you? What's up, man? What's up, man? I got to talk about Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods and the Ryder Cup, you don't even have a respectable sponsor, dude. You lost Buick. You lost Gatorade. You lost the video game. Man, you even lost your kids. The only sponsor you really got is Monster. What are you, some 909 dirt biker? You got a better chance at skiing the half pipe for some foreign country. You want to be worth anything? Go the Kim K or a Paris Hilton route. Huh? Ah! No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. Yeah, I don't like that call. I like Monster, though. I do like Monster. This is a Monster house. This is a Monster house. I want to be very clear about this. This is a Monster house. Literally. Monster owns this building. This is a monster house. If you think you're going to come in here and crack on monster, you got nothing coming to you. They're our landlord. They own the space. Monster owns this space. This is a monster house. And what you're saying to me is, if he wants to be relevant, he should go the Kim K route. Did he not just say that? Huh? 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 There it is. Rome in space. I am so pumped to have a chance to reach more listeners, whether it's on the CBS Sports Network, the podcast, over 200 stations across North America, and now Sirius XM. I appreciate all of it and all of you. Check back once again tomorrow for more, and I'll see you then. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love.